0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jane Bartlett. And it's a farewell to summer, although not a particularly hot one this year. But today we delve into the industrial poisonous food industry with historian Humphrey McQueen. Then to the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and what its adoption in Australian universities could mean for staff and students. I was speaking to senior lecturer at Sydney University, Nick Reiner, and Palestine Australian lecturer and tutor, Farhan Ali at the same university and finally Richard Llewellyn, former registrar of the Australian War Memorial some history and some present in the way the memorial is going, quoting Richard richer, not better but he's back, or turned and ready to go, Mr. Kevin Healy
2: a week, Jane Listener, when the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review held a workforce summit Wednesday to sort out the common problem restraining the economy and therefore attacking the common good. Lazy, avaricious workers. Thus, all workforce participants were represented, from caring employers to the caring business class to bosses. To bosses to the caring business class, to caring employers. Eliminating any need for the cause of all their troubles, the lazy avaricious to be represented by other than the caring business class, because they were and are quite capable of representing the ingrates. Indeed, no far, far better than their ignorant workforce what's good for their ignorant workforce. Although, in order to give it a little credibility, we might have thought they'd invite a token union official. We're not asking to have a common worker in their midst, for God's sake, but say a shopping-the-workers-association official, but no, manon. The workers were represented by the great corporates, and we discovered lazy, avaricious workers are so lazy and so avaricious that we must import good workers, happy to do an unfair day's work for an unfair day's pay. And the socialist government is a barrier to this important advance. Restrictive barriers, like expecting them to be paid, And no less a fighter for the rights of workers, our very own corporate icon, BHP, bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, bemoaned the fact that inflation was hurting the economy. Wage inflation along with that eternal problem productivity or rather lack of, that impediment to their equally eternal desire to solve the problems of slow wage growth that so disturbed them. And great retailer Worse Farmer's chief exploit humans resources officer said evil unions were seeking as much as a crippling four percent increase in bargaining negotiations when we're showing the restraint evil unions and workers lack by restricting our pricing increases to, in some cases, as little as 10 to 12%, presumably per week. Meaning poor worse farmers, indeed all caring employers, will be forced to string out bargaining endlessly, while need we say this, negotiating in good faith. And bargaining could be concluded quickly if only the evil unions and workers didn't want things. For worse farmers it could get worse, that bloody retail and fast food workers union might get involved and claim sacrilegiously that wages should at least match inflation. And all caring employers, led again by bloody huge profits and worse farmers, further bemoan the socialist threat that workers doing the same job should receive the same remuneration, same job, same pay for labour, hire workers, for instance. Bloody huge profits declaring having to pay workers would disrupt its business. And Worst Farmers expressed major concerns that legislation on casual workers could prevent workers and caring employers from maintaining flexible work arrangements. There's that word again. Flexibility is right up there with productivity in caring employers' lexicon for making life so much better for the workers they so care about. They all agreed there needed to be some genuine consultation with business about all these matters. Uh, And with unions? When they recovered, they pointed out they had held their workforce summit quite successfully without evil union interruption, so no. Consultation is also in their lexicon. They didn't consult us on tax changes that affect the taxes we don't pay, they complained regularly. Despite all that, good news for workers though. At the end of the day, the caring business class concluded their workforce summit had done a good job at representing the workforce. It's not often, in fact, it just doesn't happen, that the caring business class get a laugh out of the week that was. To be honest, I suspect no one does unless she, he appreciates bad, bad jokes. But this week, the Nab Your Bank Supremo, Nab Your Money Bank Supremo, Ross McScrew and customers, in announcing record profits yet again, said rising interest rates were good for the banks. Then uh, Ross, we mused, Why not take a bit less yourself and and give a bit of the windfall to your customers? Well, what a reaction. I've never seen a man laugh so much. He he fell to the ground, grasping his belly, rolling and rolling and rolling with uncontrollable laughter. Loud guffaw after loud guffaw. Ah, I followed up. Ah, was that a yes or a no, Ross? He was unable to answer, just guffaw, so I thought it wiser not to ask him why it was also good that banks did not apply the higher rates they charge to the interest rates they don't pay depositors. However, the which bank, which used to be our bank, Supremo, Matt McMatt, coming for your money, helped us a bit with, we have to be competitive and we have to strike the right balance across a range of products. Whatever that meant, I said he only helped us a bit. Our Indigenous comrades launched the voice campaign Thursday, and as if to celebrate the occasion, a voice sounding, I must admit, somewhat slow-witted, could be heard in the background. Detail, you know, like detail. Oh, are you Constable Duffer? Oh, you know, uh, think so. What do you mean, think so? I think so, I'm pretty certain. Uh, I'll just check. Susan! He called to Deputy De- uh, Caring Business Class Party Supremos, Susan Lees and Dregs. Am I Constable like Duffer? Yes, I keep telling you, Peter, yes. Thought so? Yes, like. And here, the newly launched campaign handed him a file, are the answers to your 15 queries. Detail, like you know, I, I you know, need more detail. But the true was the people need, you know, like, detail. But, but it's all there. I will not, you know, have my campaign for, like, detail derailed by, you know, detail. Sponsorship quite properly derailed at the Adelaide Festival, which has shown its true anti-Semitic colours by inviting two Palestinian writers to speak, views which must never be heard, and thanks to the vigilance of and pressure of the True Blue Aussie Zionist lobby, a major sponsor has withdrawn. Palestinian writers, non-people, anti-Semitic. Although, but uh, hang on, that that means they're anti-themselves, because they are Semitic. Wrong, the Zionist lobby corrected us. They are landless non-people, and therefore, being non-people, they can't be Semitic. And even if they were, which they're not, they would criticize Zion, and any criticism of Zion is anti-Semitic. Meanwhile, lots of non-people were massacred as Zion-trained killers attacked them in the non-land to which they were banished when Zion stole their country, rendering them landless. Uh, Yes, you talk about terrorists. You obviously mean these sinister-looking personal arsenals of trained killers invading, terrifying, slaughtering, and destroying these people, people, sorry, non-people's property. As non-people, they have no right to property. No, the non-people are the terrorists. Those trained killers represent peace, liberty, freedom, and democracy. Interesting... Friday's Trouble Capitalist Review devoted six pages to Russia's invasion of Ukraine and not even a word, not a mention of Zion invading and massacring the innocent. That, presumably, would be anti Semitic. Question What does singer Della Reese and former Socialist Party MP Theo Leoponis have in common? Answer? Bet you got it. What a difference a day makes. Della's big hit and Wednesday, Thursday lay upon us discovered just how spot on that is. Wednesday morning's Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin, for which he is a regular deep thinking political observer, Theo yet again pushed his troubler was he must go nuclear to save the planet. As a lobbyist, we, we wonder who his clients are. No, no, we won't go there. Indeed, he asserted, nuclear power will come to true Then Thursday, poor Theo was in the news pages, nailed by the State Anti-Corruption Authority for misusing his position on the Metropolitan Planning Authority to lobby for a $31 million development, the developer pouring money into... Theo's MP daughter's political campaign. Poor Theo also forced to resign from the state trustees, presumably for diminishing trust in his independence in Theo, although some cruel souls might say it couldn't diminish any further. We could suggest it couldn't happen to a nicer. Except, here's Paul lay upon us trying to save the world. The inevitable nuclear energy will, in his words, help us to save the planet's climate. See, all altruistic, selfless, and giving us a choice. What will get the planet first, the climate or the radioactive waste? Finally, tribute to one of, if not the greatest offender of the battlers, daily bemoaning the struggles against cost of living increases, sensible advice on how to reduce those costs, denouncing the greedy who continue to inflate inflation. Yes, the worker's friend, Lord Rupert of Wapping, particularly through his tabloid media, including P1 um, Friday, socialist sticky fingers, your money is our honey. The poor attacked yet again by a rapacious government, compounding price rises by greedy capitalists. Then turn the page, P2. Lord Rupert announcing as of yesterday, Monday, the price for his monopolistic products will increase by 12%. Must be the labour costs of the lazy, avaricious workers ripping him off. Oh, and P8 headline, greedy businesses driving inflation. Nothing but consistent, Lord Rupert. Shame socialists. Shame greedy capitalists. Shame lazy avaricious ripping off workers. Bravo Lord Rupert. I was going to say viva Lord Rupert, but at his age with a new girlfriend, that's touch and go, which I'll do. Good afternoon.
3: CR is
0: Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change?
3: We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03
1: 9419 8377.
3: That's 9419 8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
4: Believe in the right to protest? Are you concerned about climate change and the environment? Then come and make your voice heard at a mass meeting on the right to organise for climate and the environment. Join others at 6.30pm on Tuesday, March 7th at 535 Elizabeth Street, Central Melbourne to discuss and then vote on practical ways to support climate action and the environment and to defend the right to protest. Speakers include proud Gunai Kurnai woman Marjorie Thorpe, United Workers Union's Godfrey Mose, and Environment Justice Australia lawyer Natalie Hogan, and will be facilitated by Tuffy Morwitzer, campaigner for the Gungara Environment Centre. Come participate in some direct democracy for a better world. Your voice matters. RSVP is essential. Go to gecko.org.au forward slash calendar to book your ticket. This event is wheelchair accessible and Auslan interpreted. A 3CR supporter.
1: Today we welcome back author and Marxist historian, Humphrey McQueen to Tuesday home time. On Sunday evening, I spoke with Humphrey and his topic was the industrial poison food industry. In thinking about
5: talking about the poisonous food industry, I got led back into not just the production of food to go into tins and cans and supermarkets, but the production of food in the ground, out of the soil and all of that, well, out of the oceans as well, of course. There, I wanted to say something about the great work of Professor Mark Davis. Mark Davis published many books. He died late last year. Great loss to the left in, in every particular. A couple of books that I hope people are well aware of, one of them particularly related to to the COVID pandemic, was a version he did after the Asian flu in 2003 called The Monster at our Door. And then he did an update in 2020 called "The Monster Inside." What he traces through that is how the industrialisation of the poultry industry provided the incubator for how Canadian geese flying over farms with you know hundreds of thousands of ducks and chooks all together managed to drop their business into the water, and and the geese over many centuries are, are immune to it. But, of course, these creatures down on the ground weren't. That's how it spread. But, of course, the other element of this is, you know, you've got this enormous concentration of animals in one place or birds in one place. The other thing they do, of course, to get the maximum out of their stock is to genetically breed them in a way that breed out all the varieties. So you only have the the kind of genes going around in your gene pool in these places, that are going to give them the maximum body weight in the shorter space of time and that the flesh will be in the creatures where they want it to be. Now, what this means is that if a virus gets into them, it just goes straight through them. There is no resistance within the gene pool of any of these creatures. That's the second thing they do. The other thing that we know they do, because of these problems, they inject a lot of the animals, particularly, with various kinds of antibiotics. And they come back down through the food chain. We get them in the food, if, if you're still eating flesh, come down to us in that. And this reduces the effectiveness of the antibiotics that we have. So we now have in hospitals and places all these antibiotic resistance that has come up. And that coming out of the industrialisation of the food industry. The other aspects of it, of course, is that the food itself and people are now flying around the world, not quite the speed of sound, but but pretty fast indeed, so that if something happens in one place, as we saw three years ago, it begins to happen everywhere. That part of jet travel, the the movement of freight, as part of the industrialised nature of of the food industry, puts another part of it in. The other part of it, which is remote from Australia, but it's very important that you... You know, well across the world. And Mike Davis wrote another book called Planet of Slums. And we have these vast slum conurbations now with 25 million people. I'm not talking about the ones in China, which are fairly well regulated, but the ones in Latin America and Africa and Asia and other parts where you get people brought together or flung together really. Very little sanitation, not much you know, access to pure water if things are going badly. And, of course, these also become incubators for all kinds of infections. And the the other thing that really need to go back to, the starting point for all of this, is the deforestation. Because if you look at how the first of the Ebola outbreaks in recent times happened in Africa, I think it was 1997, the clever scientists have been able to trace it back to the first person who was infected. There was... I think a nine-year-old boy, what he'd done was to climb up a tree and he got bitten by a bat. We may not think there's anything odd about this until we're reminded that the boy and the bat were only in proximity because the forest around them had been cleared to grow palm oil. And that kind of destruction of the barriers between Humankind and some kinds of animals that are then part of of the human organization are broken down by this drive to make vast plantations to put in palm oil or any number of other things. And the same goes on with aquaculture. I mean, there's a lot of discussion, as you will be aware, of the destruction that's going on in Tasmania through all of the salmon farming, the industrialization of that, and how the it gets out into the waterways and all of those kinds of things. So when we think about the food that we get to eat and whether we think, are we getting too much salt, sugar and fat, before we think about that, we've got to go back and look at the whole industrialisation of the food origins changes to where the stuff is grown, where it's harvested, how it's raised and how it's slaughtered. I presume most of the 3TR listeners will have seen That terrifying film is called Food Inc. And the thing that's striking in that, in the United States, there are apparently four major abattoirs, only four. So all the cattle from America are brought together and they're put into stockyards. And the inevitable is that before they get slaughtered, they're up to their fetlocks, way above their fetlocks, in, in their own shit. So beside the abattoirs, there are these vast factories in which the meat has to be put through ammonia after ammonia to kill off the bacteria. What are the products of this as to how it gets into the human food chain. But before we get to there, as I've been saying all along, we've got to go back and look at the industrialisation of the of the production process before it gets to the factory, before it gets to the cannery uh, or the frozen food works. We can go on and say quite a bit about side of it as well.
1: And when did it actually happen, the beginning? Well, I mean,
5: in some ways, um, it was happening in the late 19th century. There's a very famous novel called The Jungle by Upton Sinclair, which is set in a abattoir in Chicago. And the story, I mean, it's, you know, it's a sort of standard classic of the socialist left from 1908. And the effect of the novel, interestingly, at the time was such that they introduced the Pure food acts in the United States. Of course, the enormous battle to get to the Supreme Court to allow them to happen, that the states weren't allowed to do this kind of thing. All of that went on for you know, years and years and years. But it was happening really from then on that it was becoming large scale. And the development of, of food as a major production food, I mean, another side of it, he woke of with the cornflakes of Dr. Kellogg's cornflakes. Now this was designed in the 19th, late 19th century. One of the major health problems that people faced in the countries like the United States and Britain and Australia was constipation because they were eating all the wrong things as far well as their bowels were concerned. Too much fat, too much heavy food and things. What Dr. Kellogg did was to say what you've got to have for your breakfast is not large piece of steak, bacon and eggs and beans and all these things that people have been eating, what you can get by on is a plate of cornflakes. Well, in one sense, that's been true, and a lot of people have had cornflakes for breakfast or wheat picks or for their equivalent for a long time ever since. The problem with that was, of course, that in flattening out the grain, you got rid of a lot of the good things that you needed in it. So that while you weren't getting the bad things for your gut, that were coming from the previous way you are eating, in eating the cornflakes, you weren't actually getting the things you would get if you ate the whole grain. So whenever we look at food that is sold to us as being, oh, this is more healthy than something else, you have always got to ask yourself, well, yes, but what have they done to it to get it to this point? What are we now not also being able to get? So you see food now, you know, some of those cornflakes packets have a list of the things that they've added to it. Most of those things were originally in the grain and they've had to put them in again. But the other problem with all the corn flakes and the cocoa pops and things is so many of them are now 25, 30% high sugar content. They've pumped these into kids. This is a very scientific activity that they engage in. There is something called the bliss point that they know scientifically when it's too sweet and people will stop. They push the amount of sugar in something, up and up and up, until it gets to there. And the way in which they've been adding various kinds of salt to food, uh, for all these kinds of reasons, and fat, all of these things, these are not part of the natural food that we're getting. These are part of the mass marketing that goes into the design of food. In the marketing department, before it gets anywhere near the scientists or the technicians or anybody else, they are thinking, how can we fill a niche in the sales market that nobody else has got, or how can we do it in a way that makes it look fun or attractive to us? And these are the problems that we very much face in trying to work out what is good food for us. I mean, if you know, I mean, as I do all the time, whenever I take something off a shelf or out of a freezer or something, the first thing I do is to look at that six ballpoint type or whatever it is that tells you what's supposed to be in it. You really do have to strain to make the effort to work out whether it's, you know, 140 calories or, you know, 240. They're not deliberately trying to inform us. We're not getting what is supposed to happen in a free market where we are fully informed about all their choices. That's not what's happening to us.
1: Can I take you to what? sugar? Whiter than white? In a sense, blacker than black because
5: the sugar industry was the basis of slavery and slavery was the basis of the sugar industry that really came in in the 1700s it was on the basis of that in brazil and the west indies and places that that whole i mean you could say that i mean it's an exaggeration but the development of capitalism in the united kingdom could not have happened without the slave production of sugar throughout Jamaica and the Antiguas and all those places around the Caribbean and the West Indies. And having got this, they then had to sell it to people at home because they weren't accustomed to it. The sweetener historically had been out of bees and honey and there wasn't all that much of it. So they were having to, to market it in various ways. And it then gets tied into the marketing of two other products, one from slaves which was the development of the coffee industry, throughout Brazil and Latin America, and the other was through the development of the tea industry out of India to China and so on. I have to draw a line there because now we're on the verge of the opium wars into China, uh, so we won't go there tonight. We'll do that some other time, perhaps. But sugar was built into all of this. Sugar and power, political power, economic power, These were there from the 17th century onwards. Um, And King George II said to his Prime Minister, it would be better for England to be invaded than for us to lose the West Indies. Because if we lose the Indies, we lose the material resources to pay for driving whoever invades us out. And we've got a much better chance of keeping the invader out than we would have if the French were to take all the West Indies away from us. Well, this is how... Terribly important all of that sugar industry was. Having got to there, of course, what they then do is to start saying to people, well, we want you to get tea as well. But people weren't accustomed to drinking tea. Uh, so they had to be taught how to drink tea. And one way to do that was to put a bit of sugar in. It. They sweetened up the tea. By the end of the 19th century, I'm making like a big jump, the working class, the basis of their diet, was so bad, the industrialised diet that was happening to people is that what is now promoted as high tea is this posh thing that you go off and do but the English working class, high tea was a sort of white bread, sugar loaded jam out of the fold in the orchard, the things that you know fell out of the tree and were half rotten, a lot of pumpkin mixed in with them as well, and pots of highly sugared tea and that and you're getting all this fake energy out of the sugar industry. And then of course, from the late nineteenth century, we start to get the bit that, that we know all about under the story of Coca Cola, which was, you know, about a third of it pretty much pure sugar. It had other things in it as well to, to try and try and get you addicted. But it was really getting people highly into sugar and it had disastrous effects on people's tea everywhere. They spent, and this is typical of them, not just coke, they all do it, spent a fortune on proving that sugar didn't have these bad effects on people's teeth, for example. And it was an enormous battle. Anyone who was arguing against them, they'd run the usual line of, he's a communist, otherwise he wouldn't be saying these things against us. So the whole of the sugar industry, and as you I the other film that you will be aware of is the one called Super Size Me. There's a hell of a lot of sugar in that. And the the pressure now for a sugar tax, the fact that we haven't got one, what it really shows us is the power of those big corporations. Because everyone who knows anything about it from a scientific point of view is saying the least we can do is to have a 10% sugar tax, to do something to bring down the overconsumption of, of these highly sugared votes, we haven't got one. And it isn't even on the agenda, there's no political party, I mean it isn't one of the things that you know, any of the state governments or, or the federal government is even talking about anymore. What we do get from them, you know, particularly from the coalition more than from anybody else, but it's a sort of standard ploy, is that it's your personal responsibility. The reason you're getting too much sugar is you don't have any self-control. The reason you you smoke is you don't have self-control. The reason you take too much alcohol, the reason you gamble, all of these things, they are your individual fault. Well, let's get round to the food one and say, okay, let's accept that it is an individual's responsibility. What we need to do then is to even up the playing field. The individual. It's based on tiny bits of information, but confronting a food, a poisonous food industry that spends billions of dollars a year in convincing us to buy all this junk, all this poisonous junk. Fine, let's get rid of the mass marketing. Let's get rid of all the advertising and the pressure on us to buy these things, and then we can be individually responsible. But until that, it isn't even a playing field. It's a disaster zone. And this talk about, oh, you've got to, you know, you've got to to get some self-control. Okay, let's get control over these corporations and stop them engaging in what I call market totalitarianism. That there is no outside the pressure of the market. Nowadays, I think, you know, it's gone up now, 7,000 people who go online, use their phones, use their online, 7,000 buy signals are thrown at us every day. And it's not just a matter of getting us to buy Coca-Cola rather than Pepsi. It's a matter of buy, 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 spend, 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 consume, consume, consume. That's the big message that they have to get across. Once they've got that across, and you have to say they certainly have, because we're now in a situation, I mean, there was a time in which people would buy something, you know, perhaps they didn't necessarily need it or could afford it, but they bought it for the thing itself the use they are going to put it to. Now, a lot of the use value in buying something is the exchange, is the thrill you get from saying, add to cart, that they've moved it away from the actual object itself to getting you to just buy, buy, buy. Of course, each corporation is concerned to get you to buy their things, but the whole system is determined to get us to buy, buy, buy. If you look at the, you know, But the ads for food that come onto television, on your screens and things. I mean, it's amazing that that obesity and other food disorders aren't seriously far greater than they've actually turned out to be.
1: Humphrey, tell us more about the most expensive real estate.
5: Oh, well, there's a lot of talk in Australia now about, you know, how expensive it is to get a roof over your head. And that's true. But... The most expensive piece of real estate in Australia is a supermarket shelf. The corporations either directly pay the supermarkets a premium to stock their product, or, like Coca-Cola, they're selling so much that they sell it to them at a, at a discount rate. And what they get is not just that it's on the shelf. Some of the things I want to buy, I have to crawl around the supermarket floor to find are on the bottom shelf whereas all the big selling items or the things that have been given to the supermarket where they're paid to display them they're up at eye level and that the actual cost of this to the supplier to the food company is they are paying for a great deal of the rent that goes on inside any of any of the big supermarkets so it does come as a bit of a shock to be told that the most expensive real estate in the country is a tiny bit on a supermarket shelf. But the nature of the system, as to how the drivers work now, that's been true for a very long time. It's interesting to note that until about the 70s, one of the two big American chocolate companies never advertised. They never spent a penny on advertising. And yet they were equal top in the amount of chocolate they were able to sell. How did they do it? They bought the space by the cash register so that they paid the supermarket a premium to allow them to put all their, you know, bars and nibbles and things as you're waiting, or you used to wait of course, or you do now because you've got, you've got self-service. So that's been taken away from them. But for 80 years, one of the big chocolate makers never advertised. They did this marketing exercise by putting it right in front of you. It's still there. I mean, I was going through the supermarket this afternoon and there's some little chocolate Easter eggs and little chocolate bunnies and things now there waiting for me. And I'm thinking, no, I'm not going to buy one of those. But I would, it wouldn't have even entered into my head had they not been there.
1: Talk about the marketing or the way marketing convinced people to buy gluten-free.
5: People have been made aware that there's a problem with the kind of food that that we're being sold. Companies like Australia are aware. You to be more careful about your food over your diabetes or, you know, heart problems and cancers, all of these. So they're very concerned about. It. What they also do is to, uh, it's what the corporations do, is they come up with one obvious example is people to hear that it's good to have for your breakfast some kind of a bowl of muesli. And you put some yogurt on it. So the two things together. What do the candy makers do? They make a bar which has got yogurt, God knows how much or how little, and you know, a couple of teaspoons of muesli in it. And that's what it's called. And people look at this and think it's a health food and it's marketed as if it were a health food. And of course it's loaded down with sugar, like all those things are. Now the other thing they do is they think, Well, how do we distinguish our product from somebody else's? How do we get people to think this is going to this is going to be good for me and i'm prepared to pay a bit more for it there are people as we know who are gluten intolerant and for them it's a very big problem they've really got to be very careful about what they eat but the marketing industry has been able to sell this notion to people who have no gluten intolerance whatsoever in some way or other gluten free this you just walk along the supermarket shelves, the amount of gluten-free this, that, and the other thing that is now there. If you compare the prices, they're potentially higher than the same item that isn't supposedly gluten-free. The other thing they do is they come up with some magic ingredient in the food, something that's there, and they either say, our yogurt has this in it? Well, the fact of the matter is, to be yogurt, all yogurts have that in it. They're just promoting this as if it was something extra and special. and You pay for that. The other thing they then do is they'll say that the yogurt or the bread or something doesn't have something else in it. But you then find, of course, if you get <laughs> a little bit of scientific prodding behind all of this, you find that no bread has that in it, that no yogurt, no milk, no cheese has that, you know, whatever this thing is that's being marketed at you and you then are expected to pay another 5 or up to 10% extra to get this thing that's going to keep you healthy because it doesn't have this thing in it that you wouldn't get anyway. So all of these marketing ploys are there, and they've been developed really from the 1920s is when it really got underway, when the psychologists and the psychiatrists got to work with the marketeers and began to think, to play on people's emotions, their fears, their alarms, and we'd have to say our vanities as well, as to what they were going to be able to sell larger quantities of at a much greater price. And one of the problems, we might want to end with this point, is that, go back to where we began, with the, the spread of viruses. The Australian Nobel laureate Peter Doherty in his book Sentinel Chickens tells a very revealing story. He was in the United States and they were out on a golf course and there was some cages of you know, ordinary backyard chooks on the golf course. And his colleague, who was an immunologist, said to him, what are they doing here? And as he said they're here as early warning signs. So if, if a particular bird flu it drops out of the sky on them, it'll show up here, we'll be able to do something about it. But the virologist did not know what the immunologist knew and the immunologist doesn't know what the virologist knows. But neither of them know the things we've been talking about. And when they talk about the pandemic, I listen and listen and listen through all the years of it. How many people did you ever hear being interviewed who were asked to talk about the kinds of things that are in the books that Mike Davis wrote about why these uh, viruses are now getting into the food chains, why they're now coming into contact with human beings in ways they didn't before, that the political economy of the industrial poisonous food industry is never really a part of the scientific discussion, that the science is kind of pure and above all of that. But unless you bring those elements into it, you're never going to understand why it is there. The point that Mike Davis, I think, Really makes very clear to us is that despite all the talk, this wasn't, we haven't just been through a one in a hundred year pandemic. What we've been through is the most recent upsurge of the pandemics and epidemics that started probably in the late 1990s and we can expect them to go on for another hundred years. It's possibly noticed, there's just a report today that there is a, a new version of bird flu that's going through bird populations, getting into mammals, and has killed the first human being in Cambodia. Now, whether this becomes another pandemic like COVID, you can't say that in advance. But what we can say is that the pandemics and the epidemics of all of these things are not going to go away as long as the whole of the natural part of the world, the soil is treated the way that it is, the forests are cleared, the oceans are poisoned, it's just going to generate more and more of these things. It's an argument that can only be solved by the abolition of an economic system that requires this, and that means an end of the capitalist system.
1: And many thanks once again to Humphrey McQueen, Marxist historian and
3: author. Solidarity Salon, home of Radical Women and Freedom Socialist Party, has moved to Reservoir. We are a socialist, feminist bookshop and organising centre, eager to collaborate with a diversity of optimistic rebels. All gender identities welcome. We're at 113 Spring Street Reservoir, near Regent Station. Drop in or get contact details at socialism.com. Solidarity Salon is a proud 3CR supporter. Justice Commission is the first formal truth-telling inquiry into injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria.
1: From Monday February 27th to Friday March 10, Uruk is holding public hearings with First Peoples witnesses who have experienced injustice in the child protection and criminal justice systems. You can watch the hearings online or make a submission at urukjusticecommission.org. A 3CR supporter.
3: Did you know that 3CR received its community radio license in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station, and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 0394198377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe.
1: Next, we focus on the IHRA, the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance, and the move in a number of countries for its adoption in their universities. I spoke with Nick Reimer from the English and Linguistics Department at Sydney University. Nick, it would appear that Australian universities are split on decisions to adopt the IHRA, the controversial definition of anti-Semitism. Can we go back to its inception? By whom, when and why?
6: So the IHRA has been around for a bit over 20 years, 25 years. And the definition of anti-Semitism has been around for almost as long as that. And originally it was just an attempt to provide criteria to allow the tracking of anti-Semitism in various parts of the world. Um, The original drafter of the the definition, Kenneth Stern, said that it was never meant to be used as a sort of hate speech code. Um, It was just a statistical instrument. He himself has criticised the way that it's now being used by Zionist organisations essentially to clamp down on criticism of Israel and to, to silence Palestine advocates. So the definition has been perverted and really hijacked from, it, from its original intention. And the way that it now identifies criticism of Israel with antisemitism is quite simply extraordinary. And it's, it's really astonishing that it's, it's taken as seriously by, by some bodies, particularly governments, as it is.
1: And how many governments do you put in that category?
6: Well, I mean, if you visit the IHRA homepage, you'll see that there are quite a lot of states around the world, including Australia, that have endorsed the definition. So it has a high degree of official credit. Or at least there are a lot of states that are members of the IHRA and many have endorsed the anti-Semitism definition. But there are also lots of places that have rejected it. So quite recently, the US Department of Education pointedly refused to, you know, adopt the the anti-Semitism declaration. It's also been rejected by a number of high-profile serious research institutions, universities. So the University of Toronto, for example, has not adopted it. The University of Aberdeen, which is also a serious research institution, um, hasn't adopted it. I mean, in Australia, Griffith Uni and James Cook University have both not adopted it and said that they're not adopting it. So there's plenty of contestation of the definition, including from uh, within the Jewish community.
1: And, of course, it's not legally binding on anyone.
6: No, it's not. The problem with it is that it just gives a big legitimacy boost to Zionists, to people who want to promote Israeli apartheid, when they claim that Palestine supporters and Palestine advocates are stepping over the line. So the IHRA definition is regularly appealed to by supporters of the State of Israel to silence Palestine advocacy. They say, you're not criticising Israel, you're being anti-Semitic, you're targeting Jews, and it's absolute nonsense, it's absolute nonsense. One of the aspects or one of the examples that the IHRA definition gives of anti-Semitism is precisely criticism of the state of Israel for being a racist endeavour. So if you say, look, Israel is racist, it's built on the dispossession of of Palestinians, that counts you as as anti-Semitic. And it's absurd because there are plenty of states that are built on racism. Australia is one of them. Israel is certainly another. Any settler colonial society is. um, And it should be possible to just state that.
1: I'd like to know why universities... In Australia, particularly, are being targeted?
6: Yeah, well, I mean, the Australian Parliamentary Friends of the IHRA, which was a group that was set up late last year, wrote to vice chancellors asking them to adopt the IHRA definition of anti Semitism, clearly with the intention of suppressing Palestine advocacy on campuses in this country. I mean, it's certainly true that universities, or at least some universities, are real hubs of the Palestine Justice Movement. And the National Tertiary Education Union at its National Council last year adopted motions that supported um, Palestine and that uh, specifically opposed the IHRA definition. So universities are, are central sites for the whole debate over Zionism in Australia. And that's, I think, why they've come to the attention of the Zionist lobby.
1: How many universities in Australia have adopted it so far?
6: The ones that I know of, Jan, I know of three. So, the University of Melbourne, Macquarie University, and the University of Wollongong have all adopted the IHRA definition already. Often, such as in the in the cases of, you know, Macquarie and Wollongong, they really did it on the fly. People didn't really know that they, that they had done it, but when this issue erupted late last year, that all came out. However, all of the other universities are now being asked to do so by these Australian parliamentary friends of the IHRA. I mean, you know, Australian universities, like universities in many parts of the world, are places where the whole question of boycotting Israel the whole question of supporting the Palestinian BDS campaign for, for Palestinian rights, that is a, real, a, a really prominent, it's a hot question in universities. There's lots of support for, for the academic boycott of Israel. So you can see why Zionists would want to concentrate, concentrate on universities and why the, those victories they've had at those three places are, you know, count for them.
1: Well, let's look at how it can impact on aspects of the university, you've got the students, you've got the staff, you've got the teachers, lecturers, and you've got the vice chancellors. How would it impact or how does it impact on those various aspects of university life?
6: I mean, look, it impacts on them in the same way. It's a very blunt instrument. It just allows any pro-Israel supporter, any Zionist, any supporter of apartheid, to point to somebody who says that Israel is a a racist endeavour or who is calling for activism against Israel and just say, look, this is anti-Semitism. So it just gives them an extra grounds on which to, to go after Palestine supporters. One of the things that Zionists have said for years about the BDS campaign specifically is that it singles Israel out for criticism that wouldn't be leveled against other states. You know, people who call for various forms of boycott against Israel um, are accused of basically being anti-Semitic because they're not also calling for boycotts against, you know, Myanmar or or Saudi Arabia or whatever whatever other human rights abusing state you you choose to pick. So the IHRA definition institutionalizes that. It says that applying double standards by requiring a behavior of Israel that isn't expected or demanded of any other democratic nation is essentially anti-Semitic. So you can't criticize Israel or you can't demand changes in Israel for the IHRA without also demanding changes in every other democratic nation. So singling out Israel is anti-Semitic for them, which really ignores the fact that whenever you do a political campaign, it's necessarily selective. There's a campaign for Palestinian rights, which necessarily targets Israel. There's a campaign for, you know, environmental justice, which inevitably targets the particular state that the that the campaign is running in. Australian refugee rights advocates intrinsically target Australia. The idea that you can't do that is absurd and it doesn't correspond to any of the realities of the political camp of political campaigning but the fact that it's now been enshrined in a definition of anti-semitism gives Zionists this powerful weapon to say that it the criticism of Israel or calls for the boycott of Israel are essentially anti-semitic
1: well, when you say they can go after individuals or organizations how can they go after them? What's the well, result? Look, the result can
6: be, can be very serious. And we don't have to speculate about it because we've seen what has happened in other parts of the world um, when Zionist advocates have used the IHRA definition. To take a couple of examples, there was a, a Palestinian lecturer at Sheffield Hallam University in the UK who was suspended last year because of her advocacy for Palestinian rights, and the university used the IHRA definition to justify that suspension. Similarly, there's a a academic at George Washington University in the US who's now being targeted for being an an anti-Semite, allegedly, precisely on the grounds that are codified by the IHRA. So university managers um, have enormous power to dismiss staff on a basically discretionary basis, with very few checks and balances. And the fact that there's this officially accepted, codified definition of anti-Semitism, which builds in these completely spurious examples, gives them a uh, really powerful justification to do that. Fortunately, though, I think that it's becoming more and more clear that the emperor has no clothes the flaws of the IHRA definition and the fact that it's really just a political tool that has been cooked up by the Israel lobby to smash Palestine advocates, that's becoming more and more apparent and it's, the definition is becoming more and more discredited.
1: The trouble is they've got so much power or they appear to have so much power and backing by powerful bodies.
6: Well, I mean, yes, the, the Israel lobby or the... Is- You know, Israel lobbyists are powerful. The situation has, I think, changed since the change of government in Israel recently. I mean, Israel has always perpetrated apartheid against Palestinians from 1948. Israel has always been dispossessive, brutal settler-colonial project which rests on racism and the, you know, the, the dispossession, the murder the, the imprisonment, the land theft from Palestinian people. So there's a real continuity in Israel from 1948 on that. But since members of the far right attained positions of power in in the Israeli government under the new Netanyahu regime a couple of months ago, there seems to have been a new, you know, realization in the west of what Israel is. And anybody who is trying to shield Israel from criticism is now seen as really taking the side of the most toxic elements of, of Israeli political culture, you know, far, far right Jewish supremacists. So that is a reason for which the IHRA definition should be, you know, even, even more contested. And I would like to think, and I, I think it is true that despite the power of the Israel lobby that you're talking about, the tide is turning, I would hope. I think there are reasons to think that the tide is turning on Israel when you have major human rights organisations, major international organisations like Amnesty or Human Rights Watch following Palestinian organisations and Israeli ones in saying, look, Israel is an apartheid state. This is South Africa all over again. In fact, it's even worse. I think that does signal a, a, a change or the beginnings of a shift, at least in civil society. That shift needs to then filter up into, in, into politics.
1: And how strong do you believe the push is at particularly your, in, your in university to make sure that this IHRA isn't part of the university?
6: There's been enormous opposition to universities adopting the IHRA, the Australian-Palestine Advocacy Network. Many other groups, the National Tertiary Education Union that I'm a member of, have explicitly opposed the definition. The NTEU at Sydney University has written to the Vice-Chancellor pointing out everything that's wrong with the definition. Jewish academics and Jewish groups have also written to our Vice-Chancellors making exactly the same objections. So, yes, there's a very consequential resistance underway and it really rests with vice-chancellors to demonstrate that their commitment to academic freedom is real and that they're not just going to to fold when a group of, you know, sponsors of apartheid and and proponents of ethnic cleansing go to them and ask them to join in their word games.
1: Just finally, Nick, how... Could this impact on you as a lecturer at the university if this goes through? Or how are they hoping it could change the way that you give lectures or conduct your work at the university? Well, I mean, just speaking for
6: myself personally, Jan, I've just published a book, an academic book, about the academic boycott of Israel in which I analyse the the boycott and I also defend it. And that makes me anti-Semitic on the IHRA definition. And it's not just me either. There are any number of my colleagues here, academics at the University of Sydney and academics all around the country, who will be declared or certified as anti-Semites if this definition is adopted. And that poses a real challenge to vice chancellors. So if vice chancellors say, yes, okay, this is the definition of anti-Semitism we're going to adopt, that will have the consequence that hundreds or perhaps thousands of Australian academics will become anti-Semites on the very definition that vice-chancellors have adopted. So I don't know about uh, Mark Scott, the vice-chancellor at at the University of Sydney, but I would hope he would see just how absurd that would be. Just how absurd that in the snapping of the fingers, in adopting this definition, he'd suddenly be left with hundreds, hundreds of staff members who think that Israel is a racist endeavour or who call for a boycott of Israel, who he would have to agree were anti-Semites. What's he gonna do? Is he gonna initiate disciplinary proceedings against hundreds of us? Is he gonna proceed to a mass sacking of of hundreds of us? Or is he going to just accept that having hundreds of anti-Semites on campus is okay? Of course we're not anti-Semites, but the definition will, will make us that. And you really can't do that. He can't sign up to this definition and then do nothing. You know, that would be a really unconscionable outcome to say, okay, yes, I agree with your definition of anti-Semitism. If someone singles out Israel, or if someone says that Israel is a racist endeavour, and yes, they're anti-Semites, I've got all these staff who do those things, but I'm not going to do anything. That will be unconscionable. If this a- definition of anti-Semitism is endorsed, it has to be acted on, and that will lead to mass disciplinary action, perhaps mass sackings, against hundreds or thousands of, of academic staff in Australian universities.
1: Has there been any convers- conversations with the Vice-Chancellor?
6: I mean, he's replied to the, to, to the representations that the NTU has made with him, and he's said, you know, they are carefully considering the question, and we can only hope that they see sense and don't cave in to this pressure group that is promoting apartheid, and wanting to have a powerful new weapon to use against advocates for human rights, global justice in Palestine.
1: And it's more important than ever, isn't it, Nick, to expose what is happening to the Palestinians?
6: Uh, it, it absolutely is, Jan, and I'm sure Fahad will talk to you about this when you speak to him. But, I mean, you know, we've got the most extreme far-right government that we've ever seen in Israel, in which Jewish supremacists have direct authority and control over Palestinians' lives in the West Bank. I mean, just, you know, just a couple of days ago, we saw the most deadly Israeli attack in the West Bank since the Second Intifada. In Nablus, I think 11 people, eleven Palestinians killed, hundreds wounded, and we saw, we've seen attacks in Janine, in, in East Jerusalem. Palestinians are living under apartheid, under a brutal military occupation, Gaza is being strangulated. A few years ago, they were saying it would be unlivable by 2020. Well, that, that has passed, and yes, it is unlivable. And what is the international community going to do? That's the question. Universities, in particular, are sort of key, key sites in this. A vice-chancellor is going to line up on the side of proponents of apartheid and settler colonialism and brutal occupation, or are they actually going to take a stand in favour of human rights and allow Palestine advocacy to unfold on their campuses?
1: Thanks very much, Nick.
6: Thanks, Jan. Thanks for talking to me.
1: I've been speaking with Nick Reiner, a senior lecturer at Sydney University. But how would the endorsement of the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism impact on the many Palestinian and Arab university students and academics and other staff in the campuses across Australia? I spoke next to Palestinian-Australian Fahid Ali, and asked him what his role was at the University of Sydney.
0: I'm a casual academic and tutor in biology and genetics.
1: And how do you believe the adoption of the IHRA could impact you personally?
0: Well, there's a number of things. So the first thing is the personal impact it has on me as a Palestinian. It limits my ability to advocate meaningfully on you know, an issue that is important to me because I'm Palestinian, but I think should be important to everyone out of regular human decency. So if universities take steps to limit the kind of acceptable speech that can be had on campus, that means that Visiting academics may be prohibited from engaging in on-campus events. It means that um, academics may be censured for things they post on social media or classes that they teach uh, where they may bring up material that's considered contentious. So there's a whole range of aspects that it, uh, it could have a personal impact on me for. And I think that the key point is, although the implementation of this definition will be harmful to anyone who does critical scholarship on Israel and Palestine and indeed anyone who has an opinion on in in line with the situation of human rights and you know natural justice i think that it is particularly weaponized against palestinians and so any palestinian faculty member i think right now is feeling uh, quite anxious about what this means for them
1: are there many Palestinian or Arab students at Sydney University?
0: There are a fair few. We're a small population, of course, but um, you know, there are Palestinian students who are feeling anxious about this. I can point to a recent article in The Guardian that was published last year from uh, an anonymous group of students who expressed their fear at what might result if the IHRA definition was adopted. And among the faculty... Uh, who are Palestinian or Arab with university, um, there is that same kind of anxiety about what this would mean for their research, but also what would it mean for them engaging in, you know, everyday conversations about this sort of thing?
1: Have you any knowledge of how these impacts have happened in other universities, say maybe in the US or UK, where they do have the definition in place?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And we've seen that we've seen that what has happened is although the definition was sold to universities with a guarantee that it would only be there to target genuine instances of anti Semitism, universities particularly in the UK are realizing that in fact external lobby groups are trying to leverage the situation to compel universities to censor Palestinian academics and academics who do critical scholarship on Palestine. So in, in the U.S. Uh, and U.K., we've seen academics deny tenure, we've seen cancellation of events, we've seen events that are only tangentially related to Palestine, when there's uh, the slightest hint that Palestine may be involved or referenced in some way. Uh, we've seen those events get undue attention from uh, faculty and management who are attempting to, uh, what I would say is, in, infringe on the free speech of academics.
1: And also self censorship?
0: Absolutely. So, for, for myself, but for many others in my position, there's the question of what can we say? Now, employment in the university sector is already precarious. We don't have job security. In the same way as we might have full tenure overseas, so particularly as someone to me, like who, someone like me who is a casual academic, there's a fear that if you cross the line, if you were to say something that might upset the right people, you would lose a job and therefore a future career in the in academia. And and that, for many people, is not a gamble that we'd want to take.
1: And you have instances, I'd imagine, where There's no teaching anymore of the Nakba or any other issue like that?
0: Well, this has been something that we've been worried about for some time because it already is the case that academics who teach critically about Palestine, who teach about the impact of the Nakba and the the situation in Palestine, already have been subject to complaints from, uh, you know, external lobby organisations. So there's already an anxiety about that content because it's already subject to complaints. Now, that hasn't necessarily translated into anything because we haven't had universities adopting a definition that says criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. But now that we do, if if that becomes university policy, then talking critically about Israel becomes impossible. So there is already instances of self-censorship where academics are beginning to consider whether this is really worth the effort, whether, you know, whether their careers are worth risking to do this sort of work. And and some of them unfortunately are saying no. Um, And so you know aspects of the curriculum are being maybe removed silently. Um, Other academics, you know, are asking about are asking for clarity for what would be the legal implications of something like this as it relates to their jobs. Uh, Palestinian and Arab academics in particular are worried about how this might enable racism against them. So there's a lot of different things, but I I think it's important not to see this as something that has come out of nowhere. This is a continuation of long-term attacks on Palestinian faculty.
1: I'm thinking about, it might be a bit far-fetched, but the curriculum material that academics have access to, maybe in universities or research, you know, will they have access to information or materials that actually support Palestine? Will they be barred?
0: At this stage, I probably expect that wouldn't be the case. I think that what we're more likely to see is that people who actively choose to speak up about the injustice in Palestine or people who teach critically about the issue are going to be targeted. I don't perceive there to be an issue with uh, the way in which syllabi or resources are going to be limited. I think that's not the point. I think the point is definitely to create a climate of fear among academics, and and I think that that has been quite successful.
1: Also, silencing any support for BDS.
0: Yes, well, I mean, everybody has a civil uh, has a civil freedom to engage in any kind of protest action that they like in accordance with the law. So. If if you were to suggest that you wanted to engage in a consumer boycott or an academic boycott, these are things that are already implemented. Indeed, this is something universities themselves did with regards to the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So as a tactic, we all have the right to engage in boycotts. But when it comes to a university setting, and we saw this a number of years ago when one academic at university, Jake Lynch, chose to engage in the academic boycott of Israel, he was targeted and faced legal action for um, you know, engaging in that civil right of his. Um, and so I can only imagine that that is going to become a much worse situation for us if universities decide that criticism of Israel is in itself anti-Semitic. And I
1: suppose another possibility or, or not is that Palestinian students will choose not to go to universities because of that. Is that a possibility?
0: I think that's a very real possibility. Universities often talk about diversity and inclusion and creating safe and welcoming students for, uh, for spaces for students. What I think will happen is universities that continue to ignore concerns of students from minority backgrounds, in particular Arab students in this situation, are going to unfortunately see those numbers drop out because it's just not safe to be a Palestinian student on campus where you may be reported for disciplinary action for simply existing. And, 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 and that's no exaggeration. We've already seen that to be the case. If you are a Palestinian student and you were to express an opinion as basic and innocuous as Palestine is occupied, that in itself has outraged some people in uh, the Israel lobby. So even the mildest opinions on the occupation are going to land you in trouble. And if that's the case, it's just not a safe place for Palestinian students to be.
1: It doesn't seem to me as though this IHRA It's compatible with any human rights organisation. I was just wondering what the the major organisations who support human rights worldwide are tackling this issue. I think,
0: yeah, I think a lot of them are probably agnostic on this particular issue, although I, I do know that some human rights experts have expressed concern. I think that there is... Now this uh, something that is a very valid and real concern, which is resurgent anti semitism worldwide and that is a very important problem that we need to tackle, and we need to you know be able to tackle with any means at our disposal. The problem though is when That, what has happened is we have the fight against anti-Semitism unfortunately being contorted into a fight for Israel. And so that is what I think is a disaster from a human rights perspective, both for Palestinians but also for, you know, people of Jewish background. Because I don't think that this effectively tackles anti-Semitism and indeed there have been concerns from numerous Jewish academics that right-wing anti-Semitism is not actually encapsulated within the
1: definition
0: that has been proposed.
1: And the way it's been brought out now is not what the author proposed or wanted to happen in the first place.
0: No, that's, that's right. The definition was always intended to be uh, somewhat of a guideline to considering, and it is possible, I must say, that in in certain circumstances, you may have someone who expresses an opposition to Israel not out of, you know, not out of a place of or a sense of justice or a solidarity with Palestinians, but actually because they are motivated by anti-Semitism. That is completely possible. But to then su- suggest that everybody who is critical of Israel is anti-Semitic, that is where the logic sort of falls down. So th- there is value in talking about that particular dynamic. And I think what the author, the original author of the definition intended to do was have something that would enable us to have these conversations and think through the parameters of antisemitism, but certainly not to be used in a legalistic setting to, you know, to make firm policy determinations about who and who is not an anti-Semite. That was never the original intent of the definition.
1: Where do you see your future at the university if this is adopted?
0: I think it would be very hard for me to remain within the university. I think that, you know, I am a Palestinian activist. I'm very proud to be one. I'm very committed to the cause of justice um, not just for Palestinians, but for all people. And I am not going to be intimidated, nor am I ashamed of that. So, if the university to pursue a policy where my criticism of Israel therefore becomes a barrier to my employment, I think that I would find it very hard to continue within the sector. So, you know, that's why academics are at this point mobilizing to challenge this definition. I can tell you that the, uh, I'm very proud that the uh, National Tertiary Education Union has taken a stance against it. So we're trying to preserve a future where, you know, that legitimate discourse, that academic freedom, and that freedom to express opinions on a human rights crisis are safeguarded by these institutions that are supposed to be at the heart of free speech and critical thinking. So that's really what I think is important to highlight here.
1: Of course, over decades, we know that education and academia is so important to Palestinians and has been, as I say, for decades and decades.
0: That's right. I think there's a. It's it's a cruel irony that um, for for many Palestinians, um, who don't have very much in terms of you know, the freedom to live in their homeland without violence, um, return even to their homeland if they live in the diaspora. They do have access, in many cases, to education. Palestinians are a very educated uh, po- population. I think that's something that is really fantastic. It's important that we continue to have access to these institutions because, you know, it enables us to, to progress and to, um, you know, develop. And unfortunately, we don't have the means to do that within our own territory as of yet freely.
1: Final words?
0: I think my final words would be that the IHRA definition is something that should concern all of us, no matter where you stand on the specifics of um, the occupation of Palestine, I think that it is a very clear attack on uh, freedom of speech and civil liberties. And I think that if we were to adopt it, we would very, very soon find out that it has some very severe consequences for our democratic rights.
1: Thank you very much.
0: You're welcome. Thank you.
1: Farhan Ali is a Palestinian Australian lecturer and tutor at the University of Sydney.
3: Interested in real community resistance to extractivism around the globe? Beehive Design Collective's Art of Resistance World Tour from Turtle Island, Canada brings us complex political discourse in March through stories, murals, music, and more. Join Liz Downs from the Rainforest Action Group for insights from her recent trip to Ecuador, where indigenous and peasant groups are fighting back against big mining and how their wins can inspire the global movement. March the 2nd at Black Spark, Northcote, starting 6pm and followed by live tunes and panel discussion. Entry free or by donation. More info at AidWatch or Melbourne Rainforest Action Group on Facebook. Are you a 3CR subscriber?
1: We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station.
4: It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance.
3: It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organization, and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Tune in to 3CR's annual International Women's Day broadcast, 24 hours of women and non-binary news, news and music on Wednesday the 8th of March. We want to celebrate the resistance, talent, strength and power of women and genderqueer living here in the Kulin Nation and of those living, fighting and creating change all over so-called Australia. And the world. This International Women's Day celebration is a celebration of feminism that knows that liberation from gender depression can never be achieved without dismantling all systems of domination and subjugation. From midnight Sunday the 7th of March until midnight on Monday the 8th of March, we'll bring you 24 hours of radio by women and non-binary presenters, producers and musicians. For details, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash IWD 2023.
4: Brunswick Music Festival presents Sydney Road Street Party, March 5th from 12pm. Featuring eight pop-up stages and performances by NAM favorites. Cable Ties, Kira Peru, Black Jesus Experience, Jack Kwai, Pinch Points, Mindy Menwang, June Jones, Georgia State Line and heaps more. Plus, great food, markets, community stalls and parties happening at venues all along Sydney Road. More info at Brunswick com AU presented by Mary Beck City Council, a free CR supporter.
1: As has been reported, the Australian War Memorial accepted more than eight hundred and thirty thousand dollars in sponsorship and donations from arms manufacturers during the last three years. Historians, some veterans and retired memorial staff, including ex-directors, have long criticised the institution's acceptance of money from arms manufacturers. One of those is Richard Llewellyn, who was the registrar of the memorial from 1986 to 1995. He now is an active supporter of Heritage Guardian's fighting the memorial's $500 million-plus development project. His recent article in Pearls and Irritations was titled For Richard, Not Better, The Prostitution of the Australian War Memorial, clearly encapsulating his point of view on the present state of play at the memorial. Richard, I believe it's important, as you point out, to remind us all that the memorial is not a military appendage nor part of national security, it is a cultural institution. How far has it moved from that focus to the former rather than the latter, in your view?
7: Really, I think it started not long after 2012, to be honest, with the um, directorship of uh, Brendan Nelson, who saw the place in a somewhat different vein to that which had been seen before. He not only had a considerable, I, can't, I won't call it a purge, uh, considerable change of staff, many of whom who had been there for quite some considerable time. So I think it was really Brendel Nelson who set it on this new trajectory. The question, for instance, of whether it is supposed to tell the story of service people rather than commemorate the service and the sacrifice really dates back to around that time. And it has been used extensively to justify the project to expand the memorial from that time. Up till then, I think the memorial had more or less followed pretty much the same pattern I do recall that uh, Sir Richard Kingsland, who was Secretary of the Department of the Interior in 1960-something or other, possibly slightly earlier, I'm not an historian, Jan. If you want to get the full history, the really accurate conception of the memorial, you need to speak to or oh, somebody like uh, Dr. Michael McKernan or Dr. Peter Stanley, Uh, both of whom have seen that article incidentally and been in touch with me and and haven't said, well, boy, did you get it wrong. As secretary and a member of what was then the board of the memorial, Sir Richard Kingsland is, in his autobiography, uh, comments that he was being very careful not to let the military on the council, can't remember the exact phrase he used, but, basically get away with too much and this is coming from a man who was a dfc and pretty much an australian uh, wartime hero he was hardly anti-military but he understood that the war memorial was not a military institution
1: okay well let's go back to brendan nelson a medical doctor what was driving him do you believe
7: I made a reference to an article that details the history of his amazing rise through various careers uh, and changes of careers. As you may know, he was Defence Secretary uh, at one stage. Uh, He was leader of the Liberal National... uh, I think it was just the Liberal Party at that stage, um, the Coalition anyway. He has, has changed from one position to another quite rapidly and in some cases, I mean, at one stage he was, I think, a member of the Labour Party and then said, oh, you know, I will I will never vote Liberal and then the next year he came out within the Liberal Party. So he's, he was capable uh, and it has been demonstrated quite well uh, of flipping his focus uh, quite rapidly. If you connect the dots, I suppose between the fact that he's now the head of Boeing uh, the CEO I think of Boeing International now and the introduction of a lot of this accumulation of simply used surplus war material not material which necessarily is associated with a major story of and a major commemoration of wartime service. You see this change in emphasis of the memorial toward being um, an institution which displays big boys' toys, to put a a crude thing on it. There are plenty of military museums. I've been to quite a lot in Australia, Australia, New Zealand, the United States, the United Kingdom. There is a definite place or military museums where people can go to understand how big and threatening and so forth a tank is, for want of a better term. That's not what the memorial was supposed to be about. If there is something in the memorial up until, about, let's say, the turn of this um, century, it had to have provenance as something which is associated with The history of service and sacrifice, but particularly, more particularly, sacrifice. You know, for instance, a Gallipoli lifeboat that was rowed in, stormed the beach at Gallipoli with bullet holes in it. That tells a story specifically that can be linked. You know, somebody can have a look at that and suddenly, you know, feel an empathy with these kids. And that's what they were, rowing in and already being shot at. An fa 18 or uh, one of the recent acquisitions, an F-111, uh, which was the only one, it had one mission. It flew over uh, East Timor once. It shouldn't even be in the memorial. That's what you're starting to see. And if you have a look at the promotion material that's on the memorial's website, This lovely um, architect's rendition of people sitting, drinking coffee, and uh, you know presumably eating sandwiches and so forth in what will be the new covered courtyard, virtually in the shadow of an FA18. How that relating, uh, in my view, to an understanding of what was involved in service? It's just a piece of large piece. Of military hardware stuck on a pole with a, effectively a, a sidewalk cafe more or less underneath it. I don't believe that that is in the spirit of what the memorial is about.
1: Did people start ringing bells soon after Nelson got in, or did it take a while?
7: I tended not to take a lot of notice of Nelson. I left the memorial in uh, let's see, 1996. And the only time I had come back to the memorial before I went a couple of years ago just at the start of the um, pandemic to start researching for an oral history or verbal history as I prefer to call it, uh, of the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in which I was involved, was for the rededication of the tomb in effect uh, with the new inscription from uh, Keating's speech. So I had not really followed that. I had played my part, I felt, in the memorial, had left with a decent feeling that I'd done something a bit useful and that the memorial had done something a bit useful and I didn't really take much notice of it. But over a period of time, and it, this does take a few years, you see, for instance, uh, the council not having an historian on it, not a single historian for an institution whose very foundation is to tell a major part of Australian history or a very significant part of Australian history. You can't just go in there and kick a board out, especially not as a director, but you can perhaps influence the appointment of people after that, whether that was flowing principally from uh, Brendan Nelson as director or whether there was a um, a significant symbiotic relationship between the various Prime Ministers and uh, so forth in power over the period or whether it was coming in fact from the government of the day and flowing in the reverse direction, it has still happened.
1: Tell me about the ANZAC cloak and how do you believe that has worked? in their favour?
7: The Anzac cloak, uh, I think it was Henry Reynolds first coined the phrase, is effectively, if you drape the Anzac cloak, you know, the spirit of Anzac or anything with the word Anzac in it, over the top of any argument, suddenly the argument becomes sacrosanct. If you're an Australian, and I I think several people have used that, phrase, to even suggest that uh, whatever the argument may be, if it's in favour of something which is described as being Anzac, Anzacary, Anzac spirit, etc., with the word Anzac in it, then suddenly you should not have any uh, opposite opinion. Classic example of that was, um, and I I, uh, quote this in my article, Alan Tudge as uh, Minister for Education saying, and I quote, Anzac Day is the most sacred day in the Australian calendar. And he made another quote, uh, which I will have to paraphrase, but it was approximately that no educational institution over which he had control is going to teach any opposing view. Something along the lines of we are not going to allow people to make Australians feel bad about Australians and ANZACs and so forth. This is, you know, very much like the stuff we are seeing in in the ultra-right wing in the United States at the moment with uh, critical race theory. It's it's the same sort of thing. You take a position uh, generally coming underneath the heading of ANZAC that our position shall not be argued against. There will be no teaching, no questioning. It's sacrosanct, and that in a way is a very bad term. Incidentally, sacred in relation to the war memorial. It is not sacred. It is deliberately not sacred. It has not been blessed or anything else. You cannot, strictly speaking, use the phrase sacred. You can't call the tomb of the unknown Australian soldier, sacred although it has been uh, suggested that in, in some cases that it's the sacred heart or the sacred soul of the nation that's just wrong but again there has been this switch an upsurge in interest whether that's come really and truly from the young people in australia wanting to know more about their history or whether it's been rather force-fed downward to them and suddenly doing things like the Gallipoli trip for the Anzac Day morning uh, has become almost a rite of passage uh, because it's on social media or whatever. There's definitely nowadays this feeling from the, in the memorial, uh, I, as I said, I have been there recently, on show is some sort of almost heroism, warrior culture type thing, uh, which was never there, never intended to be there.
1: And of course, one of those issues that you say have been muted by this ANZAC quote is criticism of Australia taking part in overseas wars that have really nothing to do with us.
7: Oh, absolutely. I guess you could say that commemoration and understanding of our involvement in Vietnam, despite the fact that if you read the the history of the Vietnam War and particularly with the spillover into what was the absolute destruction of Cambodia, the, the bombing of Cambodia was just unbelievable, we had conscription as an issue. So Vietnam became a major social movement, I guess, you know, both for and against, mainly against. But just about everything else since then has been a decision of government for whatever reasons, and I don't think it's argued uh, very strongly that involvement in Iraq, for instance, was anything but illegal in international terms. Well, Afghanistan's been for successive nations. It's been a, a, a major mess. If you put the Anzac cloak over the involvement in any of those actions, I think is the correct word, uh, then suddenly they take on the mantle. I think the government hopes of being, you know, reasonable, good things, maybe a bit heroic, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Anzac spirit is one of the, the phrases that is frequently used. So by effectively putting the Anzac cloak over the top, uh, suddenly they become legitimised. They become in this area of sacrosanct, not to be questioned, not to be criticised, which is very convenient for governments who really don't wish to be held to account for um, the decisions that they took money that they spent killing of people in countries that we saw things like on national TV, an Australian soldier shooting a peasant, blowing his head off from about three metres away. When you see stuff like that going on, it's very hard not to say, hang on, what is going on here? Our country is being dragged into a situation that it should not have been. And to try and put the ANZAC, well... Everybody was doing their bit for Australia. It doesn't fit very well with me, but it's very useful to the memorial because that is the whole narrative that they have put behind the expansion of the place. So you get this symbiotic relationship: the memorial being, um, I'll call it the talisman, you know, one of those amulets that you can hold up to keep the devil away, of the Anzac cloak idea so the memorial becomes the physical representation that then is useful to the government. The memorial itself becomes useful to the government because it is the physical embodiment of legitimisation of the actions that the government involved Australia in.
1: Yet you argue that Whitlam was one who didn't go along with that?
7: No, uh, Whitlam Whitlam absolutely did not. and virtually... Immediately Whitlam got into power, I think you you, you may recall. Uh, he withdrew Australian troops from Vietnam and he came out very strongly. <laughs> Gough Whitlam and the Prime Minister of Sweden came out very strongly when the uh, truth of what was going on, particularly in Cambodia, which was being bombed at uh, an intensity that had not even been seen in the Second World War. We're talking fifty, sixty thousand 60,000 pounds of bombs dropped in a month and more from B-52s on a small country, month after month after month. Whitlam and the uh, head of Sweden came out against this very strongly and very publicly. Uh, it was Nixon's, uh, quote, Nixon doctrine uh, and Kissinger's, Involvement. You can read that in a uh, book uh, by William Shawcross called Sideshow, uh, and it, it it will make your hair go grey. Um, it was just so corrupt. Nixon went ballistic over that, uh, and considered that Australia, part of ANZUS, and so forth. Publicly, said some extremely unpleasant words uh, about Whitlam's position in. Profanities that are not really allowed uh, over most of the uh, most of the media. Whitlam stood up to what was going on in the world and got us out of there, which went against the tacit understanding more than anything else of, for instance, the ANSIS Pact. But nobody else has done it. I think everybody more or less agrees that that Howard took us into um, Iraq to join with uh, Blair and Bush for whatever reason he wanted to and uh, we know that the reasons that were given by all three of those were uh, not true.
1: You're listening to an interview with Richard Llewellyn who was the registrar of the Australian War Memorial between 1986 and 1995. Going back to your article for Richard's not better, the prostitution of the Australian War Memorial, the figures have been put out lately showing that in the last three years, close to a million has been given to the War Memorial by arms manufacturers. How do you cope with that?
7: I'm very much against it for the fairly obvious reason of uh, why are they doing it. They're doing it, I think, partially to be perhaps seen as good, Yeah, corporate citizens. When you think about that, Australians don't go out and buy fighter jets. The government buys fighter jets. So if you're Boeing and you can see that the government has a vested interest in the war memorial being the cover, for want of a better term, for various military action, then it makes sense to be seen as... Contributing to the War Memorial, because that's actually helping the government with the story that it wishes to present. And helps the War Memorial with the story that it wishes to present. And then, ultimately, you get your TAILS armored personnel vehicle on display. You get your Boeing FA-18 on display. The A theater being seen by everybody. These names suddenly are there. They're there as part of the memorial. Therefore, more impressionable people may conclude, well, you know, they must be all right because they're supporting the memorial and the memorial is good. I think you can see the connection fairly easily. It's in these companies' interests. And, you know, let's face it, $500,000 pluck a figure out of the air to have one's name emblazoned in various things and one's products on display. Brendan Nelson, as Defence Minister, he was the one who signed the purchase order for the Boeing FA-18s. Small world, isn't it?
1: I believe that the current debate over the position of the frontier wars has sort of covered over all this money coming from the arms manufacturers. Will that go anywhere?
7: During my time at the memorial, quite obviously it was on the radar of First Nations people, but it wasn't on the radar of what we might call the Australians, the Australian invaders. The term Australian, there was no such thing in legal existence as Australia before 1901. We didn't even have Australian passports until I think 1946. The memorial is the Australian War Memorial, and although this may seem like a pedantic argument, it really is the story of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, not First Nations people, fighting for reasons that were appropriate to them. In all seriousness, I cannot understand that First Nations people uh, would have thought, my goodness gracious me, Germany is declaring war, I better go and fight it for the sake of my country. You know, that, that, that's a very tenuous connection. The necessity to tell the Frontier War story is, is absolutely paramount, I believe, at the moment, and we, you know, particularly with the question of things like The Voice. Personally, I don't think the memorial is the right place to do it because it's the wrong ambience. You would be walking in for a start with the um, expansion. Through an entry that is going to be grotesque is going to look more like uh, an overblown architectural fantasy airport lounge, I think uh, with some of the same sort of features you know lots of marble and lots of light in there and so forth there wasn't i don 't think much marble, not a lot of light in there um mostly involved with things like the First World War, the Western Front, Gallipoli. It was mud and bodies and artillery shells falling. But if you walk in through this ambience and you walk past stories which are being told, which are what Anglo-Saxon Protestant type stories with an an undertone and in some cases a bit of an overtone of, of sort of, you know, mateship and heroism and so forth and so forth, and then you're going to walk into a gallery which basically flips that story on its head because suddenly the same people that were heroes or the parents and grandparents of the same people that were heroes in effect in the First World War, the Second World War, etc., etc., suddenly have to be seen as villains as well in the frontier war situation. I don't think it can be done. I think I I honestly, personally, think that the um, the memorial is the wrong place to do it. It's the wrong ambience. What is needed is a decent size, you know, appropriate institution that people can go with the mindset when they enter of I am going to look at this part of Australian history and try and understand it, rather than being shoveled out of a bus because the Australian War Memorial um, is a major tourist attraction. I'm sorry, I know that I'm uh, digressing slightly, but it is. Brendan Nelson, for instance, was very proud of the fact that we were... Sorry, that the memorial was something like the 19th most visited uh, tourist destination in the world and was ahead of the Egyptian pyramids. Believe for that. I spent a little bit of time in visitor services. And I found, amongst other things, that people on tours overseas, you know, Japanese in particular, were being shoved off a plane into a bus and bussed up at about 4.20 when when the memorial shut down at 5 to visit the memorial. talked to one of the bus drivers once and he said, well, it's because it's got the cleanest and most decent toilets closest to the airport. That really puts Australia's history in context, doesn't it? It's it's just wrong. Using the argument of the frontier wars, and it's not really being used by the government. This is a uh, a movement that's coming from historians and so forth more than anything else that understand that we have to recognise what went on and apologise, really, uh, for the the terrible injustices that were done to First Nations people, and the memorial seems to be the logical place to do it. I don't think it's a logical place to do it.
1: From what you've been saying, Richard, is there a sense of revisionism going on at the war Memorial? You spoke to me about the Afghan gallery and the pistol graphic.
7: I'm going to start off with a quote from Kim Beasley um, when he was appointed very recently as the new chairman uh, of the council. Now, as it happened, Kim was uh, Secretary of Defence for a while, also of finance, and he, he is uh somebody who used to visit the memorial quite frequently during the time that I was there, understood what the memorial was about. Now, his quote was, I started visiting the memorial, and I, and I think I tracked it down, that's sort of like nine or ten years old. And it was a, a sombre place, and it's now uh, somewhat overwhelming, which is a very polite and <laughs> diplomatic way of saying it's too much, and it is too much. But a more cogent expression was that the Council of the War Memorial sometime in the last few years and certainly as a part of its documentation in the proposal for the new expansion has unilaterally and without any legislative support added to the War Memorial's uh, legislation the phrase and I I haven't got it in front of me at the moment uh, but roughly speaking where it said to commemorate the uh, service and sacrifice uh, of you know those uh, who died in war, which is virtually prime point one of the purpose of the war memorial, the council have added, and to tell the story of service of those in modern modern wartime. First of all, the council doesn't have the authority to change uh, legislation if it is going to be what the memorial is intended to do, that should have gone through Parliament. In terms of revisionism, yes, you are getting an absolute black and white, down on paper, revision of the purpose of the war memorial uh, being made by the Council. I don't think there's any um, any stronger evidence of the Council deciding to take the war memorial in either a different or possibly an additional direction. I'm not quite sure which of those two most applies. I think at the moment it is convenient for the War Memorial, and this is how it has been used by the War Memorial, to, quote, tell the story. Modern conflicts or warlike actions have cost 46 lives and not all of those in combat either, or combat-type situations. You know, some of them were road accidents, etc. They were also, all of the people, as as far as I'm aware, who were involved were professional service people, or policemen, not just military service, but they were professionals doing their job. In Vietnam, there were conscripts. In the Second World War, there were volunteers. In the First World War, they're almost all volunteers with the exception of the officers. It's a different focus. There are all sorts of people who lose their lives doing things like volunteer work, rural fire service. You don't see a museum being set up to the people who died uh, as volunteers in firefighting situations. They were just out there doing their job. As it happens, I happen to be a, well, an ex-member, I guess of the RFS and we went out and did the job and were bloody glad when it was over and I don't think anybody's been saying well we don't count for anything unless there is a, a museum set up to tell the story I'll go back to uh, Sir Richard Kingston he flew Catalinas in particular which were out of Australia uh, up through the islands the Catalinas were almost our long range bombers for a while. We didn't really have any long-range bombers. So Catalinas were not only doing all sorts of observation work uh, they were doing marine protection they were dropping mines and so forth. Actively engaging an enemy which was actively coming down with the intent of invading Australia. He was a member of the council. He was in charge of the memorial. He never required it to quote tell his story. He'd done his bit, that was fine by him. It hasn't, as far as I'm aware, crossed the mind of most of the service people from certainly, I think, even up to Vietnam. From there on, yes, we have lots of people uh, coming out and saying, uh, I only feel that my service has been validated when I see my name on the Taran Cot wall. Uh, That quote was a you know very emotional one with Brenda Nelson standing there practically in tears next to this person telling him this wonderful uh, story about how important it was. Uh, she forgot to mention that she was actually on council, uh, but you know one could do that i suppose and and that's part of the what I call prostitution I think it's being taken in directions almost as a decoration for action that has been Uh, Undertaken by the government and which should, frankly, be seriously questioned as to why and what use to Australia it was. I don't think anybody has yet found any real benefit to Australia from our involvement in practically any of the major conflicts that they're talking about, particularly Afghanistan. We've created a lot of enemies and I don't think we've created many friends.
1: Well, finally, Richard, is it too late? Has it gone too far to put a stop to the way that this war Memorial is progressing?
7: I suspect that the change in the physical nature of the memorial, i.e. the new development project, unfortunately, if it had been nipped in the bud 18 months ago, uh, it would have been fine. I don't think it can be now. Uh, I do have a lot of hope for Kim Beasley uh, realigning the council uh, with the proper purpose of the memorial. And that would flow down into the sort of um, exhibits and the way that, quote, the stories are told. You commented about the man in the mud versus pistol grip, and those, those two really do show... The man in the mud was taken from a photograph of a man suffering desperately from gas in the First World War. Uh, There are pictures of, you know, utter devastation, dead horses lying in in a filthy stream, mud, and right at the front of it, a soldier with his hands over his face, and you can't really tell whether he's crying, sleeping, disgusted. At the end of his tether, what? But there's exhaustion of all sorts, physical and probably emotional, comes across in that thing. Pistol grip is warrior culture to me because there's no background. There's just a larger than life-size portrait of a man holding a pistol in a firing position. No context, nothing whatsoever. It's all about that person. Totally different focus. You can change back displays and so forth, from being warrior culture back to being the true story of conflict, particularly the effect of conflict, both upon the nation and upon the individuals involved. It is possible to do.
1: I've been speaking with Richard Llewellyn, registrar of the Australian War Memorial between 1986 and 1995.